My name's Nick. We are in the middle of our Nehemiah series. Uh, last week, Neil taught you how to do a, some kind of weightlifting move and added some scripture around that. Um, and uh, our series is called Return and Renew and Restore. And we are in chapter 9 of the book of Nehemiah. So the restoration of the wall is done. The restoration of Jerusalem is complete from a physical perspective and we left off when Neil uh, told us that they were celebrating the festival of booths or the festival of tabernacles. Um, as I said, I just came back from South Africa. There is a suburb in South Africa called Glen Hazel and Glen Hazel is a particularly Jewish uh, suburb. And um, when, when we were kids, we would we would drive next to the guys that were walking and ask them if they wanted a lift because they were walking to, uh, to Sabbath and we thought that was hilarious, you know, and they would have to explain why they didn't want a lift. Thank you very much. So, so um, I know, I know. It was like, I probably shouldn't have said that. But one of the things that you would see in the neighborhood is that um, over the Feast of Booths, which is an amazing time of celebration, which, which Neil covered, is, is uh, Jewish people are meant to live in a shelter for seven days in order to remind themselves of the 40 years that they spent in the wilderness and how God provided for them. Um, they are meant to do that. But, but one of the things that you'll see in these neighborhoods, which are, which are really well-off neighborhoods, is these amazing homes. And on the top of the roof of a home is a tent. And that is technically allowed, because they are technically living under a tent, you know. And uh, as I was driving past, I was seeing this, and I'm like, I'm not sure that this is what God had in mind to remind you that you were living out in the wilderness, you know. Anyway, this time of feasting and goodness is where we find the Israelites, and it's often in the time of rejoicing in the work of God um, where the Spirit sets this as a platform in terms of what our responsibilities are. I'm often at, at weddings that are times of celebration and times of great enjoyment, but it's often at the time of wedding where I'm, I'm confronted by what a poor husband I, I am. It's at a time of a wedding when I hear the covenant and I, and I hear what marriage should be about and, and what people are promising to each other that I'm realizing, man, I'm, I'm just not measuring up. God, you've got to help me. Um, and don't help and help her not to realize that, that I'm not measuring up, you know. Um, but this is where we are with the Israelites. And in Nehemiah 9, uh, after all of this amazing celebration and people are rejoicing and and, and, and having a, a party, in Nehemiah 9, verse 1, it says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their father. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. And Israel has realized uh, that they have been unfaithful, that they, in a sense, have been like an, an adulterous wife. And um, after they've reveled in the goodness of God, they've realized how far short they've come, that feasting has turned to fasting, and the Word of God has brought conviction to their souls. For three hours, 
they read the word of God. Three hours. For three hours, they confessed. Are you guys ready for that? 30 minutes is a piece of cake compared to this. Like I said, I just came from Africa where church is the whole day. And when I mean the whole day, I mean the whole day. You are there sunrise to sunset for six hours at a minimum. Some say 12. For six hours, they read the word of God and they confessed. Why? Because Israel had lost its distinctiveness. God had called them. God had rescued them. God had delivered them and established them as an example of what covenant life would look like under the rulership of God their father. But now they'd lost their distinctiveness. They'd been taken into exile. And this was the returning exiles coming back. As they see their city restored, they see the walls rebuilt, they see the gates have been put up, they realize that the walls of their own hearts are still destroyed and they have allowed the idols of the people around them and the uh, things that are important to the nations around them and the character of the nations around them have come in through the gates of their heart and they spontaneously begin to repent. No one tells them, no one calls them to repent. No one calls a time of fasting. They spontaneously, as they hear the word of God, they repent. And chapter 9 is the longest prayer in the Bible. I, I didn't know that. It's the longest prayer in the Bible, and of course it has to be about confession. But the most amazing thing about this chapter is it's not really about Israel. The most amazing thing about this chapter is it's all about God. And like the rest of the Bible that we think is all about these different people, it's actually all about God and what He has done. I looked up online, uh, I typed in, where can I confess? Um, and there's a lot of things you probably shouldn't type in online. It uh, was super not helpful, but I, I got two answers. The one was I could go to a message board, and I could just confess. And so I went to this message board, and, and I, I'm reading all these confessions, thinking to myself, I wonder if there's any way that anyone can like trace this IP address of this person. Because if there's anyone that they should trace, it's this person who confessed this thing. It was, the most, it was the most randomest thing, reading these confessions to complete strangers. Um, the other one was I could download an app, uh, a confession app. And on this confession app, I could say, when was my last confession? And I could, I could push a button. And then I could say, which one was it? Was it one of the seven deadly sins? Was it one of the Ten Commandments that I broke? And I, I would push that. And then I would uh, push pride, and I would do that, and then they would tell me exactly what I needed to do. I needed to read this many prayers, I needed to do this penance and, and that. Well, why not? Everything else has become so disconnected. Everything else has, has become devoid of human contact. Uh, why not confession? And, and today, even, we have a bit of a, um, an interesting relationship when it comes to confession. No one in this room is saying, yes, I want to come to church and I want to confess. Because that's what it's all about. No, but confession is a beautiful thing. And hopefully this morning we're going to recapture the beauty of confession. Your family history may have a lot to do with your understanding of confession. My, uh, one of the things that still rings in my mind when it comes to confession is when, when I would confess as a, as a young boy and I would say, I'm sorry, the words that I would hear, don't feel sorry for me, this is just an example. The words that I would hear would be, would be, sorry doesn't make it better. And so I developed this posture of actually not apologizing um, because my apology wouldn't make this better. My repentance wouldn't make this better. I had to actually physically do something to prove uh, that I was sorry. 
maybe that's something of what you sense when it comes to confession. Maybe that's something of your family history that's kind of bled into the way that you understand that. Or, or on the opposite side, maybe you are a person that has received an insincere confession. There's nothing more painful than someone that has hurt you and then comes to repent and you feel like they are not sorry at all for what they've done. They're not carrying any sense of repentance for what they've done. And so that's why we have this complicated relationship when it comes to confession. But confession is a beautiful thing when it is internally motivated rather than externally extracted. Um, I'm going to confess one of the things that I do with my girls that is so not helpful is I will say to them, so who did this? And of course, no one. No one did it. It just seemed to happen. The thing just broke on its own, you know. But that's another story. And then finally, when we get to the person that did break it, I'll stand there and I'll say, and? And they'll look at me and they'll say, and what? And are you sorry? Yes, I'm sorry. What are you sorry for? Um, do you think there's something happening in their heart where they're understanding... <laughs> the depth of depravity that led them to break this thing they shouldn't have touched in the first place? That's not happening, right? Because it is being externally forced on them. And what we see with the Israelites is that is not happening. They are reading about the faithfulness of their God and suddenly they're recognizing, man, our lives are not lining up with the grace that God has shown us, with the faithfulness that God has shown us, with the kindness that God has shown us. God, you need to help us. And that's what true confession is. And so this morning, we, we're going to try and recapture the beauty and power of confession. And one of the things that we see in the scripture from verses 6 to 37 is they rehearse the faithfulness of God. And one of the first ways that we can become better as a confessing people is to rehearse the faithfulness of God. I was in South Africa, and of course, if, if you've been back home and you haven't been there for a while, there's a lot of stories that begin like this. Remember when? Do you remember when? And some of the stories are funny. Like uh, I went to my friend Roger's house, and he says, Hey, Nick, do you remember when Palm Pilots first came out? And you had your Palm Pilot, and you were taking notes at church, and you would make fun of me because I was taking notes in an old pad and pen, with an old pad and pen. And you'd say, man, this is a new wave. You've got to, uh, you know, uh, come with the times and all those kinds of things and um, and the next day Kiona took your palm pilot and she threw it in the pool not on purpose and I didn't make her confess either but then there are times where, where the Spirit of God just reminds me I, I remember going to the property that that God had gifted us with and I remember looking over the fence and saying to God oh God would you give us this property and now there is a church and a school there, a thriving community. And, and those are things that I remember as I come back and as I pray, oh God, won't you give us a property? Oh God, won't you give us a building where we can serve our city? Oh God, won't you give us a space where we can make much of you? And, and, and remembering God's faithfulness, and I confess my unbelief. And I say, God, sometimes I don't think you can do it. Sometimes I don't think you care. But I look at this and I remember, I remember peeking over saying, oh God, you did this. And so when we remember God's faithfulness, and from, from verse 6 to 37, they remember the Abrahamic covenant where God chose Abraham just because he chose Abraham. 
where, where God rescued Israel out of Egypt and delivered them from the hand of the Pharaoh, where he split the Red Sea, where the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire led Israel through this difficult time, the reestablishment of the covenant at Mount Sinai, the provision of daily bread, manna in the desert, the sustaining for 40 years, and then finally the conquering and settling in the promised land. And that's what we need to do, and that's why we worship, and that's why we gather, and that's why it's so important, because we intentionally shift our focus every Sunday away from our circumstances and remind ourselves of the faithfulness of God. And in the midst of desiring more things and in the midst of praying and believing for more things, we are reminded, God, you have been faithful. And just like, just like the Israelites in chapter 9 of Nehemiah are reminded, God has been so faithful. And as we rehearse God's faithfulness, we need to interrogate our own false memories. How many of you um, have heard an exaggerated story and you don't really know what to do? Because you know this isn't true. It can't be true. But then do you embarrass the person and say, that can't be true. I've, a car can't go 150 miles an hour. That's impossible, you know. And so one of the things that happens with our lives is that we exaggerate and we, we develop these false memories. And, and part of the tragedy is that we develop not only false memories about what's happened to us, but we develop false memories about God and how he was engaged in all of this, which is what the Israelites had done. Time and time and time again, as we go through the Old Testament, it said, and they forgot their God. And they forgot the exploits of their God. How do you forget a sea splitting open? How do you forget a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire? How do you forget those things? Well, we forget the faithfulness of God all the time. It's easy to point the finger, but we often forget the faithfulness of God. Uh, accompanied with Israel's spiritual amnesia, they've developed this false narrative. And we often do the same thing. Because in Numbers 11, this is the most interesting thing for me, we, we really develop these false memories that we believe. We actually think that this is what's happened. And the Israelites are saying to Moses, now, under, right, were, the, were the Israelites slaves in Egypt? Yes, they were. Okay. Um, would you say being a slave is a good or a bad thing? It's a bad, thank you, Karen. It's a bad thing, okay? And now they're sitting down in Numbers 11. Listen to this. It says, we remember the fish which we so freely ate in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and garlic. And I'm thinking, I hope that's not all one dish because that would be pretty gross. But we remember the fish and the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, and the onions and garlic. But now our whole being is dried up because there is nothing but this manna before us. Even if this was true, which it was not, they were not eating fish and cucumbers and melons and garlic. They were not eating pots full of flesh, which is what they said. Even if it was true, they were slaves. They are now free. God is leading them to the promised land. And part of our journey when we remember the faithfulness of God is to interrogate our own false memories. We are not exempt from this. Uh, we are very quick with 4K clarity. That's extra HD for those of you that are, you know. With 4K clarity, how and when we were wronged by someone. If I tell you, tell me someone that wronged you, you would have a list. If I said to you, give me a list of people you've wronged. 
Uh, it, they wouldn't come so quickly. Tell me about times where you felt God let you down. Tell me about times where you felt like God intervened and was faithful in spite of your behavior. We need to interrogate our false memories. And part of confession is that. It's actually saying, God, I have forgotten you. I've forgotten your kindness. I've forgotten your generosity. I've forgotten your power. And I've chosen to focus on the things that I have not received, rather on the things that I have. So what if you're eating bread in the desert? You are no longer a slave. And even if they were eating fish, and even if they were eating all of this crazy combination of spices, the reality is this, is that sometimes on our journey to freedom, it is more bland than we expected. But we're still on our journey to freedom. And that's something that we need to recognize. We have to understand who our God is. Confession makes no sense unless we understand the weight of who we are confessing to. Nehemiah 9 verses 30 and 31 says, Many years you bore them, it's talking about the Israelites, and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hands of the people of these lands, which is the Babylonians, through whom they're coming back from. Nevertheless, and remember as we studied in the New Testament, I said my favorite word in the New Testament is, but, nevertheless is a synonym for, but. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not make an end of them. You did not forsake them, because you are a gracious and merciful God. We do confess to one another. James tells us to confess to one another. We don't go to an app and just quickly say, okay, and I'm done. But our absolution comes from God. It doesn't come from that person. And this has to bring freedom to us because whether that person actually forgives us or not, the reality is that matters less than the, the fact that God does forgive you. So sometimes we get caught up in the fact that we don't feel forgiven because this person is still holding on to what we've done God has forgiven us that has to rest with us stronger than jumping through some kind of religious hoop hoping that that person will see that I'm sorry so that I can feel better the joy we have is that we don't need some kind of intermediary like the Israelites needed they needed priests, they needed Levites they needed sacrifices and we don't need the blood of goats and bulls. We don't need to pay penance. We don't need to pray endless prayers. We just need a clearer picture of our magnificent Savior and what he's already done. Paul tells Timothy, there is only one God, and there is therefore only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. Why? Because he gave himself as a ransom for all. He paid it all. We are coming to a throne of grace. Now, how many of you, when you want to do something difficult, all you want someone to say is, I'll go with you? Right? It doesn't matter what it is. Uh, I'll go with you. you know, I'll go. For, for me, the thing that brings me the most amount of fear is shopping. You know? I, don't, I don't want to go shopping with my kids. You know, I feel like some kind of weird guy sitting there while my kids are shopping. But if someone comes with me, I, I just feel better. You know? When you want to do something difficult, it's just easier having someone with you. You know what the precious thing about this is? Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is also our sacrifice. And Jesus enters the throne room of grace with us. 
The high priest is the one that administers the sacrifice. And as the priest, he is the sacrifice and the administrator. And he's saying, come to my throne of grace because I've done everything. I am the priest that administers the sacrifice and I'm the sacrifice itself. He accompanies, with us. He accompanies us in there. He enters with us because he represents a penalty already paid and a power already exercised. Some of the reasons we don't confess to other people, we're afraid they're going to be angry, right? Hey, Dad, that thing you told me not to touch, I touched it and I broke it. Are you angry? No, because I don't have any feelings. And I'm absolutely fine with being disobeyed, so I'm fine, you know. <laughs> yes, of course I'm angry, you know. So one of the reasons we don't confess is because we fear that someone's going to be angry. One of the other reasons we don't confess husbands and wives to one another is because we think we're going to hurt the other person. And the truth is we will. Someone will be angry. Someone will be hurt. You know who won't be angry or hurt? God. Do you know why? There is no element of surprise here. There is no element of surprise when you come to God and you say, God, you know that thing you told me not to do? He's like, you did that? Really? That's what you did? There is no element of surprise. God has seen into the motive of why you did that. God knows better than you why you did that. And he's inviting you into this journey of confession for self-discovery so he can show you not just that he's forgiven you for doing that, but son, let me show you why you do that. Let me show you why this thing is so important to you. And let's get to the root of what you don't believe about me and about you that will help you stop this. God already knows. And it's not this God waiting with this annoying kind of, okay, come on, tell me the story. Yeah, I'm ready to hear. What is your excuse? It's this inviting, open sense of saying, come, my son, my daughter, I know. I know what happened. I know that you're ashamed. I know that you've said 50 times, I won't do this again. I know you don't even want to come here because you're tired of the sound of your own voice asking for confession. I know that you don't even think that you can be forgiven for this. I know this because I'm the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice. And I'm inviting you to come and make confession so you can be free. God is not angry. He's not vindictive, but he's also not ambivalent. He's not just like, whatever. He's like, I know this is not good for you. I know this is going to be ultimately painful for you. I want to share in this with you, which is why it's impossible. Finally, we've got to use a military term. I'm not, I'm not saying this to offend anyone. It is an actual military term. It's called embrace the suck. Okay. What does that mean? It means that I am consciously stepping into something or appreciating something that is difficult and extremely unpleasant because it's unavoidable to my progress. It is unavoidable to our progress as Christ followers if we don't develop a pattern of confession and repentance. We will not be able to grow from strength to strength and faith to faith and glory to glory. It is one of those things that God has instituted. And we need to honestly assess our situation. 
As I said, the Israelites weren't told to fast. They responded out of their own initiative. And in verse nine, verses, uh, chapter 9, verse 36, it says this. They are saying, Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gift, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. That phrase is exactly the same phrase that they uttered to Moses. Save us from Egypt. They're uttering here, God, we are in great distress. We need to honestly look at our lives and recognize that we are not free. Uh, that there, is, there are aspects of slavery that are, are binding us. That that's not the way that we were intended to live. We need to specifically look at areas of freedom in our lives that have become areas of bondage. I am free to do all things, Paul says. But not everything is beneficial for me. I'm free to do all things, but I will not be brought under the power of any. And so, so part of, part of um, rehearsing confession is embracing the difficulty of honestly looking at our lives and saying, God, is there an area which I feel enslaved? In my character, in my behavior, in my attitude? Is there an area where I feel like, man, why am I automatically responding in, the, in this way or not responding in this way? God, I am a slave. I was never born to be a slave. The blood of Jesus has brought me freedom. Help me to live in that freedom. Where are the areas where you feel powerless? Where the, are the areas where you've given up? Where, in a sense, accepted the slavery and said, Yes, that's the way it'll always be until Jesus comes back. Would it be nice to be free from this? Yes, it would. Would it be nice to never have to confess this again? Yes, it would. But do I really believe that that's possible? Maybe for some of you, that's where you're at. And there's a sense of which saying, God, I'm a slave in this area and I was not born to be a slave. You came to set me free. Please, will you do that? It's funny, this morning, Sean didn't know what I was preaching about. The priest of his prayer, he spoke about Jesus, and Jesus was talking about, you will know the truth, and the, the truth shall set you free. And the Israelites, the, the Pharisees and the scribes are saying, free? We have never been a slave to anybody. Um, not true. That's a blatant, bold-faced lie. Egypt, exiled in Babylon. You guys kind of, you know, made a thing out of being slaves. That's what you did. They say, we have never been a slave to anyone. The, you know why? No one wants to accept slavery because they have to submit to the king that frees them from the slavery. And so sometimes what we do is we reject this idea that I may be bound in something as, as a, a kind of a self-inflicted or, or self-imposed sense of superiority that no, I'm not a slave. No, in this area you are, but God will set you free if you submit yourself to Him in that area. Repentance must accompany confession. So the difficult part of confession is that we have to honestly look at our situations and say, are we enslaved? The second thing is, is repentance must accompany confession. Unless it is the automatic byproduct of confession, it is as deceptive and self-indulgent as believing that there's nothing that you need to confess from. You know, we've shifted. 
generationally, we've shifted from this idea of hiding everything. So people in my generation would hide everything. No, I'm, I'm fine, I'm doing great, awesome, you know, I am the head and not the tail. I'm, you know, a son of God. Nothing's the matter with me, I'm doing great. Well, that's wrong, okay? But we've stepped out into this area of authenticity where we actually say, no, I'm, I'm not doing well, I'm struggling in this area, and I'm struggling in that area, and I'm sitting in that area. And, and I'm like, and? There's no and. There's no sense in which, no, I recognize that that's not a fruitful way to live. No, I recognize that that's not how I was designed. Actually, I'm, I'm desperate for God to bring change in those areas. No, it's this idea that I am who I am. So we've taken off the mask. That's great. We've taken off the mask. But we're not willing to do the hard work and actually say, God, can I partner with your spirit as you bring change in these areas? And we've said it's okay not to be okay. It's not okay to stay there. It's okay not to be okay. None, none of us are altogether okay. But it's not okay to stay there. And God's Spirit is inviting us to this place of actually saying, it, there is power to not live like that. There is power to not live hiding in shame. But there is power to also, as Paul says, not to declare and to be proud of the way in which we're not okay. That's not what God has called us to. I have no regrets. Really? Have you ever heard someone say that? You, have, you really have no regrets about anything you've done. No, no regrets. I, I really think you should maybe re-examine that. Maybe you have a very poor memory. Because I have regrets on your behalf, you know. <laughs> you know what, what the idea of no regrets is? It's because we don't want to humble ourselves to a Savior and say, I need help. If we say, I have no regrets about anything I've done, we don't need to confess and we don't need to repent. And, yet, and Scripture tells us this in a New Living Translation of 2 Corinthians 7. For the kind of sorrow, there, there is a sorrow that comes with confession. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience, what? What for that? God wants us to experience sorrow? You have to stay with me for a second. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. That's pretty clear. This is not about some kind of emotional outburst where we are actually saying, oh, okay, I, I can't live like this anymore. No, this is about saying, God, I have hurt you. I've hurt the people around me. I have destroyed what it looks like for the world to see what a Christ follower believes and behaves like, and I need your help. I am sorry that I live like this. We make much of the prodigal son. The prodigal son left the pigsty. He did something. He and he went back to the father and he repented and said, I was wrong. There is a necessity for repentance, which means a desire to change my behavior. Accessing the Spirit of God, not doing this in my flesh, accessing the Spirit of God to change my behavior. Confession does have consequences. During the God and Sex series, as, as an eldership, we went through some very difficult times with people who came to us and confessed a variety of things. And I remember at an elders meeting saying, guys, this is hard. This is difficult. But this is the glory of the gospel. That men and women have encountered what it means to live in a way 
that, that expresses the love and what human flourishing looks like and are actually on their own confessing areas of sin to us. Jesus is being glorified. The gospel is taking root and bearing fruit. And it's ugly and it's messy. But I'll have ugly, messy fruit over this perfectly pruned tree that is not producing anything. There are consequences to confession. Sometimes we need to rebuild trust. Sometimes we're exposed in ways that are uncomfortable for us. But man, I've seen a consequence of confession. I have literally seen someone's countenance change. I, I look at them and they physically look different. Because the Spirit of God has ripped shame and guilt off them. And there isn't this sense of one day someone will find out. People that have lived in fear and shame and guilt for seven years and have told no one about the kind of life that they've led, the Spirit of God has rested upon them and brought freedom to them. What a beautiful thing. Repentance leads to refreshing. That's what the New Testament says. Repent and be baptized for time of refreshing to come. Lastly, we need to avoid the emotional trap. We have made too much or too little of emotion. We often judge the validity of our confession based on our emotional response. So that person doesn't look sorry because he's not crying and he's not in sackcloth and ashes and he uh, doesn't have dirt on his head. We don't do that anymore, which, by the way. But there, there doesn't seem to be this external sense of, of them being sorry. Now, emotion is tricky because a lot of it has to do with your personality but, but a lot of it has to actually do with do you understand what it is that, that you've done in, in Psalm 51 when David had committed adultery and murder the first thing that he says to God is against you you only have I sinned and I'm like he clearly doesn't get that he clearly doesn't get that he sinned against a whole lot of it and what he understands is the most important person that he needs to confess to in this area is God. And, and don't fall into the emotional trap. Sometimes you make too much or too little of emotion. Um, sometimes you just come to the realization that actually living this way is not in line with the gospel and you adjust. And there's maybe no emotion attached for that. But I do want to say this. If there's absolutely no emotion attached to a confession, perhaps we don't understand what we have done and who we've done it to. And so I'm not asking for sackcloth and ashes. I'm just saying those of you that are prone to a more stoic approach, those of you that are prone to a more emotional approach, actually just say, God, help me develop a healthy understanding of my soul so that I know that my confession is God-breathed and not emotionally driven. More emotion does not mean we're more sorry. Confession fails when we trust in our flesh. I can do it. Confession fails when we trust in our emotions. I'm just not feeling it. Confession fails when we try and manipulate God. Nehemiah 9 verse 38 says, Because of all of this, this is what will solve the problem. We will make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our princes and of our Levites, and of our priests. So they come to confess and they say, okay, this is how serious we are. 
We're going to write the stuff down and we're going to seal that stuff. Spoiler alert. It did not work. Okay? We, most of us know that it did not work. Why? Because the same prophet that told Israel they were going to be in exile in Babylon for 70 years, this same prophet says this, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was the husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer, what was happening right now? Ezra was teaching them the law, right? And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, saying, know the Lord. They will know me from the least of them to the greatest. I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sin no more. How is that possible? Only through the perfect priest. Only through the perfect sacrifice. There is nothing, nothing, nothing that God cannot forgive. And there is nothing, nothing, nothing that He cannot forgive again and again and again. That is the nature of our God. Jesus initiated this new covenant. And this is the weird thing. It's not our forgiveness that makes it. Our forgiveness is not dependent on our ability to confess. When we said yes to Jesus and we turned our back on ourselves and our own flesh and we did what it says in 1 John 1 verse 8. For if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We said, no, we have sin and we need you, God. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The character of our confessor is more important than the nature of our sin. And as we come to a place of confession in a time of confession, confession is the gift that reminds us of his past love, the fact that he was crucified on a cross and that he forgave us, and it reminds us of his present power, that he is able to sustain us as we say no to ungodliness. It's Jesus that has taken our fasting and replaced it with feasting. It is Jesus that has taken the dirt that was on our head and replaced it with a crown of glory. It is Jesus that has replaced our sackcloth with a robe of righteousness. Ben, won't you come up here? In Nehemiah 9, verse 16 and 17, this is the crux of their confession. And they say, but they... And our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck. And they did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that were performed among them, but stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. My favorite word. But. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Can we stand as a community? And I want to ask us in this context I'm going to read a confession based on Nehemiah 16 and 17 that I wrote. 
we're going to read this and then we're going to go into song and then we're just going to wait and see what the Spirit does. And if you feel comfortable, I'd love you to read this with me and think about the words that you are saying. We're going to pause at the end of each slide. Father, we act presumptuously. We are stubborn. We revel in our autonomy. We refuse to obey and do not rehearse the forgiveness, joy, and freedom you purchased for us through the death and resurrection of your Son. We discount the cost of our salvation and the preciousness of the blood of the new covenant. We live as functional atheists, trusting in our own strength, living by our own rules, worshiping ourselves, pursuing our own comforts, and ignoring the world you have called us to love. We have declared ourselves as leaders of our own lives instead of joyfully submitting to your leadership. We have unwittingly become slaves. We have exchanged our freedom for a lie. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. You will never forsake us. Jesus, your sacrifice has freed us from selfishness, sin and death. Holy Spirit, you empower us to live this new life. Father, you have adopted us. Our hearts are clean.